Welcome back to The The Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we talk about the reality of entrepreneurship to help motivate you to get past the critical early days in business. And as an entrepreneur, as someone that signs up to really become the jack of all trades of their company, you have to be good at a lot of different things. We talk about that all the time. At the very least, if you're not going to be great at something, you have to be okay with trying new things and doing things that are very, very uncomfortable. We just did a series, a four-part series about how to successfully raise or fundraise. And anybody here that's listening that's ever pitched investors or if you plan to, you'll notice that all of these investors that you're meeting, they actually expect a lot of you. They expect you to be an expert in pretty much everything. And as a founder, everyone around you, your employees, your partners, your investors, they expect you to be an expert in pretty much everything that has to do with your business. And that kind of learning, that expertise, that takes practice. To be able to immerse yourself in something new and quickly pick up that skill, that's not natural for most of us, not something that we learn in school. So because we're constantly talking about a variety of topics that might be foreign to a lot of new people, today we decided to talk about when real learning happens. In other words, how does someone actually acquire a new skill? Now, this episode was actually inspired. You guys hear me talk about it all the time. Sergey and I listen to Dax Shepard. We do love learning about entertainers because we feel like entertainers are actually very entrepreneurial. It's why we've had comedians on the show. We also had LeVar Burton on the show, who is a very famous, successful actor and also turned entrepreneur. And we think it's an entrepreneurial discipline. And I was listening to Dax Shepard's show, Armchair Expert, and he had Amelia Clark on the show. If you guys don't know Amelia Clark, you probably know her as Khaleesi. Khaleesi. As the uh, Red Queen. Wait, did they call her that? No, no, no she's not the Red Queen. Oh my God, no, let's delete that. As the mother of dragons, Daenerys Targaryen. In, of course, one of the most popular shows on the planet ever made, Game of Thrones. And there was something really interesting that she said that caught my attention that, of course, I was not aware of. As you guys know, in a bunch of the scenes that she had to do, she had to speak Dothraki. Of course, it's a made-up language, specifically made up for the book, and she talked about how she had to practice this, right? If you watch the show, you know that oftentimes she'd have to give full really long monologues delivered solely in that language. And probably there were episodes where half the episode she was talking in Dothraki. And she had to be good at it. Now, of course, she had a speech coach, but how do you deliver a line in a made-up language? Well, what I found out was that it was an incredibly trying process for her. Now, she didn't learn fluent Dothraki in the process, but she did have to learn how to deliver those monologues and those lines perfectly. She actually felt that it was her duty to do a good job with that, partly because of how much influence she had uh, on a lot of people that watch the show. I urge you to listen to that episode to get the full story, but here's their abbreviated version. She would get tapes in the mail of the scenes that she had to prepare. And the way that the tapes helped prepare is first they would say the scene in Dothraki at normal speed. Then they would break it down into little parts and do it very, very slowly. And she would kind of have to repeat these modules over and over again. And she said that during the preparation for those scenes, she was just crying all the time. Because believe it or not, to prepare for one scene that they were going to shoot, sometimes she would have to do a whole month of work. And it's not just like 
checking in here and there, you know, having a beer and trying to memorize your lines in a made-up language. It was literally nine hours a day of practice and messing up and getting through the scene all the way culminating into the moment where she actually had to do it for the shoot in front of the whole cast. And even then, sometimes she would come to the day of shooting and she would feel completely unprepared and overwhelmed and she would leave in the middle of shoots and kind of go in the dressing room and cry because it was incredibly difficult and trying. And I never really thought of that, you know? I just thought, okay, she probably practices these lines for a few days or maybe she even has a prompt in front of her while she's doing these lines. But no, that was not the case. She had to get so good at delivering those lines that she could actually then act really well as well when delivering those lines. So it required a lot of discipline and a lot of pain, but eventually she worked through it and came up with a product that she was happy with most of the time. And when Vadim told me this story earlier today, it actually inspired us to record this episode because it reminded me and Vadim of a couple times in our careers where we kind of felt just like Amelia did. And it reminded us of the fact that the moments where we felt that we were doing something so hard that you want to cry, I felt those moments before. I don't know if I've literally cried because of work that I had to do. But those moments where I'm doing something that's so hard and so unnatural that you really want to stop every part of your body and your brain is telling you to resist that feeling, those are the times where when we came to the other end of it, where we actually completed that process of learning through that difficult period of time, that's when we actually gained some level of expertise. And we've come to believe that it's truly impossible to become an expert in something unless you go through these treacherous kind of periods of time. Now, some people say you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's a really tired statement. I actually believe that true learning happens when you are uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable in the discomfort. It's impossible to be comfortable in the discomfort because that is exactly when you are learning and it happens to hurt the most. So, Sergey, I want you to talk about the last time this happened to you, and you mentioned to me that this was when you were working at Venture for America and you were tasked for the first time ever in your professional career with the job of creating a venture fund. Now, we talked about that a little bit on the show, but now we want to give you the emotional side of it. What was the experience like? You know, I was, I think, optimistic. And I think anytime you go into something like this, you are overly optimistic about your ability to learn very quickly and adapt. When I volunteered to help put together this fund, I saw it as one specific opportunity. I thought, well, right now I have experience running programs. I ran the accelerator for two years at that point for Venture for America, and I wanted to get into venture capital. And I thought, well, what better way to leverage an experience to get into venture capital than to put together this fund and how hard can it be? And the lawyers really do all the work, right? Well... Now, so I actually did know from my experience as a founder that lawyers are kind of guiding you through the process of creating an entity, whether it's a corporate entity, a fund, or something else. And when I did it, when Vadim and I did it for our previous startup, it was hard, but, you know, it, it took about a week and it was fine. For this, it was quite different. A fund is much more complicated than just a a regular corporate entity. A fund typically deals with millions of dollars and with a bunch of different parties, limited partners, general partners. You know, there's a lot of laws associated with it, the state laws, national laws. So 
naturally the process of creating a fund is more complicated. And for that reason, usually funds spend anywhere from, you know, in the tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees just to help put the fund together. But just like when you're a founder who's creating their entity, the lawyers are doing some of the initial work, but you're the one that is essentially guiding and telling him what to do and making final decisions on what that structure looks like. And even though I had some support from our CEO and our COO, I was the one that was basically doing the heavy lifting. And that process of creating that fund took about a year. The legal stuff alone took about six months. And I was the one that was going through those documents. And so the most painful part that I can remember was getting the initial deal documents. And it ended up being with all the different contracts that we needed over the course of the of the six months of creating the fund, it was about 150 pages worth of of legal jargon that I had to go through, that I had to annotate, that I had to understand every part of it because my CEO and COO were going to expect for me to understand it. And I had to go back and comment and and make sure that the lawyers gave us feedback on, on the right direction to move, but ultimately make the decisions on it. And I just remember, you know, I would sit after work because I needed to really focus. Reading legal documents is is not easy. So you need to find time to focus. And because I needed to focus, I would spend a lot of time at home after work for at least a few hours sifting through these documents where I could actually spend the time and focus on it. And I remember it was so painful that I every time I would open up, I had so much resistance to give up that sometimes it would take me three, four, five times of opening up that legal document and going through it to be able to actually sit down and focus. And You know, after several weeks of doing it, months of doing it, I was the expert on our team of what that fund looked like. And I was the go-to person. And I remember the CEO coming to me and saying like, Sergey, thank God you were willing to do this because I don't think any of us were going to do it. (laughs) But I remember it was so painful. But ultimately at the end of it, I knew it inside and out. And now I'm so comfortable looking at legal documents, corporate formation documents, even if I don't know necessarily what's going on, I can parse through the language much simpler I can at least understand what the lawyers are trying to do and what what are the educated questions to ask the lawyers so that I can then go make the right decision. But that period of discomfort lasted for a long time. And it's only because of that that I was able to leverage that experience then to get my job at NYU because I was able to tell them, look, I know I don't have a lot of venture capital experience. I've only invested in a few companies as part of VFA, but I helped create the fund. I know how the structure is. I know how it works and I'm going to be able to hit the ground running. And I'm still learning, but I feel much more confident about it than I did a couple of years ago when I was doing this. So what Sergey was going through is called the four stages of competence. And I'm going to explain that in a couple of minutes here. But before I do, I will bring it back to a story that I had a very similar experience of discomfort earlier on in my career that I mentioned on the show before, and that is doing sales. When I first got a job in direct sales, inside sales, I had never actually sold before. And here, I was expected not only to learn the product, not only to learn the pitch, but then to also find my own leads, reach them, set up appointments, walk them through a demo, and convince them to give me their credit card and sign the agreement. And in the beginning, it was probably the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done. I knew that I wanted to get sales experience, but I didn't know how difficult it was. For some people that were on my team, seemingly, it seemed easy. They were getting on these phone calls like they were talking to a friend. They were running through these demos that I would sit in on like they knew the product in and out and they knew exactly how to guide the conversation, where I, in the very beginning, had to follow a script. And I remember at some points, 
I hated cold calling so much. The rejection that came from doing 75 cold calls a day and sometimes not scheduling a single appointment after 90 phone calls where I would get hung up on by a personal injury attorney. I would get up, throw my headphones on the table, walk out, go into the bathroom, my heart racing with anxiety, and just stand there in the stall. Not crying, luckily, at least I don't remember, but pretty damn close to that. It was incredibly uncomfortable, but every day at work, I'd have to come in and go through the training, right, where we practiced our pitch from 8.30 to 9.30 every single day, messing up, having your boss, your manager yell at you for messing up in a good way, I would say. They were just kind of being like drill sergeants, but still not really getting a lot of positive reinforcement because sales oftentimes is a game of rejection and being okay with consistent and constant rejection. And actually, after that first job, I still wasn't comfortable with sales. Yeah, I closed deals. Yes, I hit my quota every single month, very painfully. But my second job after that was outside sales where I was selling to small businesses, going door to door, also very uncomfortable, also a lot of rejection. And it wasn't until my third job, now as a sales engineer, where I realized it was a better fit for me because I got to become a product specialist over time. And also I was seen as a domain expert in the meetings that I was going into. And that little amount of additional sort of comfort that was created for me gave me the confidence to learn how to sell better to where eventually I felt very comfortable going into any pitch, going into a group of seven executives at BBC and trying to convince them on the value of our product. But that took a lot of time. So now to bring it back, here is what Sergey and I were going through. And I'll give you two frameworks. One is the four stages of competence. And actually, when I talk about new skill acquisition with my students, I always like to bring this up and tie it to what it's like to learn anything, like picking up a new language, for example. The first step is unconscious incompetence. Not only are you really bad at the skill that you're trying to acquire, but you don't even know how bad you are. Now, that can be helpful sometimes because you're still green enough where you're naively even optimistic to just try it. But that's where you take that sales job or that's where you agree to that project because you don't yet know how hard it is. So you use that to your advantage at this stage of unconscious incompetence. It's part of the reason why when you're applying for your first job out of college, you're really excited and you feel like you can do almost anything, but why you can't necessarily get interviews at your sort of top choices because sometimes those places do require experience. The second step is conscious incompetence. You're still not good at what you're doing, but now you know enough to be a little bit dangerous. At the very least, you're aware that you're not good at something and have an idea in your mind for what you might need to do or what you might need to learn to get better. And this is typically where that initial deep resistance comes in and where a lot of people end up giving up. They quit that job or they say, no, I'm not gonna be good at that, I'm not gonna do this project. Or they just make a decision for themselves that I am not good at this thing. Maybe I shouldn't pursue it. But oftentimes, this is actually exactly where you need to continue pushing through because you're about to get good at something. This is also where it's good for you to start making mistakes because mistakes and failure is one of the best ways to learn, to actually acquire knowledge. If you're learning a new language, for example, once you have a certain base level of vocabulary, they always say immersion and going out there and talking to people in that language, even though you know you sound dumb and you're getting the grammar wrong, is the best way to learn. You're still not good, but at least you're willing to make some mistakes. The next stage is conscious competence. At this point, you actually know some stuff. 
you might still be considered an intermediary level, but at the very least, you somewhat know what you're talking about. But in order for you to execute on that skill, it takes a lot of concentration. So think about when you're learning to play a new instrument. Once you know enough to be dangerous, you might have to practice over and over again, but at the very least, you can hit that right note at the right time. And then the last part is unconscious competence. You become so good at something that it becomes second nature and intuition kicks in. Now, these four stages fit the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition really, really well. And this model basically says that when you start as a novice, when you're starting on something new where you don't know anything, you follow the rules. You read the rule book and you follow them to a T. As you move through the different stages from novice to advanced beginner to competent to proficient to expert level, you slowly close the rule book and you follow, like I said earlier, your intuition because things are second nature. And this takes me back to those legal documents, those formation fund documents that I was looking at. And I remember the first several weeks of going through these legal documents, I would have to Google like every other word. And that was so frustrating because it took so much time. But eventually, as I started reading that information, I already had some of those words in my repertoire and I knew what the legal jargon was trying to say without necessarily looking up every single word, even if I wasn't fully familiar. That's when I started getting a little bit more comfortable and being able to make educated inferences about whether I agreed with the legal opinion and a legal process or whether I can push back on my lawyers and say, no, you should change this and I'm confident that you should because I understand it now. This is exactly why people, employers, companies, what have you, value experience. Value how much experience that you have because they know that when they bring you on as an expert, they won't have to teach you. You will have to go through these four stages. You're going to know what you're doing. And more importantly, you're going to be able to make intelligent decisions just based on the knowledge that you already possess, that you can rely on almost blindly. This is also why people get very comfortable with what they're good at and sometimes too comfortable where they then don't want to make changes in their lives. Think about it. Let's say that you've been working for five or 10 years at a particular career. You get to a point where you're seen as an expert. People come to you for advice. You always have the answer at the tip of your tongue. It feels good. Quite frankly, part of the reason is why me and Sergey really love mentoring and advising entrepreneurs because we've done the early stage startup thing so many times. We've seen so many companies do it that Almost any question that gets thrown at us, we at least have some kind of opinion to give that we trust is going to be intelligent. But more importantly, it just feels good to be seen as an expert. But it's also dangerous because if you get too comfortable with that empowered feeling, then you won't challenge yourself often enough to acquire even more new skills or more knowledge. Now, some of you might be thinking, and rightfully so, why would I want to subject myself to that much level of pain? Do I really need to be experiencing this kind of pain all the time where I'm always trying to improve, always trying to learn, and I'm constantly going through this discomfort. I mean, that doesn't sound like a fun way to live. And we're not trying to say, do something that makes you uncomfortable every single day. Like that to me is a bit not fair because no one wants to experience pain every day. And it's not good to expect people to experience pain every day. But if you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to be a leader, you will come across periods of your life where there's something that's very challenging. And what we're telling you in this episode is that, first of all, hopefully now you know that you're not alone, 
that there are a lot of people that want to be world-class. They know they're going to go through this and they go at it head on, but also that it's not permanent. The pain is not permanent. There's that period of time where there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of pain. You feel like you don't know what you're doing and try and make yourself okay with that and know that eventually you will overcome it and you will become an expert. And that's really the only way you are going to get to that world-class level that you're trying to get to. For better or worse, greatness does require sacrifice, some kind of sacrifice. And in this case, I think it means sacrificing comfort for at least a short period of time. We're all about balance. And so like Sergey said, it's okay if you have long periods of time where you avoid that discomfort. Completely okay. But start paying attention to the challenges that do come your way and consider next time. Is it worth it for me to spend a little bit of time in the unknown, in the incompetence to get to the other side and improve myself significantly? That's it for our episode for this week. Hopefully you come away from this with at least some tools for acquiring new skills and for being able to discern whether a skill is worth to acquire for you or not. As usual, if you found this episode useful, we just ask you one thing. Please open up your podcast app, click on share, and send it to just one friend that you think might get motivated to learn a new skill this week or in the new year. We hope you all have a wonderful week this week. And of course, as usual, we'll be back with you next Monday with a brand new episode of our five-minute pick-me-up. Have a wonderful week. See you.